Thank you, Seth, and good morning to all of you. I'm glad that you're here. Let's pray, please. Bow with me. Father, as we go into your word this morning, I ask for your help. Lord, for myself, I want to preach it and teach it rightly. Lord, I want to rightly divide the word of truth. And I pray, Father, for everyone that's hearing my voice now, Lord, that you would please prepare their hearts to hear your word. Lord, I pray that now you would please apply your eternal truths to our hearts. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as um, Butch mentioned, we are continuing on in our sermon series on prayer. And you might recall, it is from the books of Ezra Nehemiah. We're calling it Rebuilding Through Prayer, because those two books, which were originally one book, by the way, we, we just split them up later, um, they were all about rebuilding. Zerubbabel, the governor, goes back to Jerusalem and rebuilds the temple. Ezra takes a group of people back with him and begins to rebuild the people spiritually with the word of God. And then Nehemiah goes back and rebuilds the walls. So these books are all about rebuilding. And there's a lot about prayer in these books as well, which is why I chose these two books to focus on prayer. This specific sermon this morning is titled Prayers of Confession. Because what we're going to see is everything isn't quite as great as we wanted it to be when Ezra returns with the people, roughly 2,000 of them, to begin to rebuild the people spiritually, which we'll talk more about that later. Prayers of confession. I don't like to, of course, just throw words out there and just assume that you know what they mean. Now you use confession. You and I use confession a lot. We talk about confess, and more than likely, you do have nailed down what it means. But I want to talk a little bit about this word because built into this word and its original language, at least in the Greek, is the meaning of this word, which is very rich. And so I want to talk about this word con- confess. It comes from the Greek word homologeo. And you're like, oh yeah, we know that, Cohen. <laughs> which comes from two words. In the original language, this comes from homu. And then also lego. Homu means together, and lego means to say or to speak. So homologeo means it means to, to speak the same thing, to essentially say the same thing, to agree with, to declare, to admit, which is why what we mean when we say we're going to confess our sins to the Lord, of course, what we mean by that is I'm saying this, I'm saying in my confession, I'm saying the same thing about my sin that God says about my sin saying the same thing as God says about my sin. It's an agreement that he's right in what he says. And I'm now lining up my words with his words. I'm speaking the same way about my sin that he speaks about my sin. I agree it's wrong. I agree it should not have been done. That's what it means to confess your sins. You are speaking the same about your sin as God speaks about your sin. You're agreeing with him. You're admitting it. And then we also use it as like a declaration because actually the word confess is used more often in the New Testament, this exact word, when we're talking about confessing Christ, having a good confession. What do we mean by that? Well, I'm saying I agree with Christ here. But in our context, we're using it when we're talking about confessing our sins, though it can be used in both contexts, and we see it used in both contexts very often, which is why context is so important, because context really determines the usage and definition of certain words. And in our context today, what we find is Ezra returns to Jerusalem. Last week, when we left him, you might recall, they returned and I said that they made certain sacrifices and they made those at the temple. It's been rebuilt. When 
Ezra returns, it's about 60 years after the people returned with the governor Zerubbabel. So it's been about 60 years. So they're pretty established. A whole generation has been born. And Ezra gets back with the goal, like we said, to study, do, and teach the Word of God. Remember that from last week? It's his goal. Using the Torah. He was skilled in the Torah. He was skilled, and by the way, the Torah is just the first five books of the Old Testament. The law. He was devoted to teaching it. And he was going to teach it. He was excited about teaching it. God used this man to get there and teach it and to reform the people by rebuilding the people. But we get some sad news, unfortunately. We get some sad news whenever he gets back. Let's look at chapter 9 together. That's where we're going to be this morning. Ezra chapter 9. We're going to be looking at the whole chapter. Um, It's only 15 verses, so don't let that scare you. Let's look what it says. You just follow along while, while I read it. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves, and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the people of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men have been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who tremble at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifices. And at the evening sacrifices, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, Oh, my God, I'm ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings, and our priests have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame, as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within this holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves. Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the king of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land you're entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the people of the lands with their abominations. They have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters to be your sons, I mean, for your sons, rather, and never seek their peace or prosperity that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us? So that you should, so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape. Oh Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for you are, for we are left a remnant that has escaped. As it is today, behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. Quite the prayer, right? Quite the prayer, and a very intense prayer. 
coupled with very intense actions, right? <laughs> I mean, I've, I've been contrite before in confessing my guilt before God. I've never ripped out my hair, nor have I ripped out this beard. But let's look through this because there is a lot here and I'm telling you, you're going to benefit from what we're going to pull out of this. I really believe this is going to help you. I really believe this is going to help you this morning. Listen to me. This is going to help you. After these things, it says in verse 1, what things? Well, they returned to Jerusalem, offered sacrifices at the temple for the first time in a long time, faithfully. And they also gave the king's letter to the rulers. Remember, the king sent them back with this letter that says, hey, I'm okay with them coming back. I give them my blessing and a whole bunch of stuff too. Gives them that letter. Says, hey, look, we're, we're here and everything's legal, essentially. We've got the king in our favor. And then after they did those things, the officials come up to him and they've got a report. That's what, that's what really verses one and two are. They're just a report. Hey, let me share with you what's going on. And what is that report? Well, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the land with their abominations. See, that's key here, okay? That's key, with their abominations. Because we read about other Jews marrying non-Jews. Remember, Boaz married Ruth. And guess what? They had King David's grandfather. So because of that marriage, the Messiah comes later. So does God frown upon every marriage of a a Jew to a non-Jew? No. This is key here, why this is frowned upon, with their abominations. That's what it is. That's what is so wrong here, is this intermarriage, and then with the intermarrying, you're bringing in their wicked ways. It's not that she or he has converted over to Judaism and now you're getting married. No, no, no. There's been no conversion. You're just bringing in the wickedness. That's where the problem is. And look who's doing it. We see the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves. These are the spiritual leaders, are they not? The priests and the Levites, these are the, these are the holy people. They're doing it. And then when we get to the end of verse 2, we also learn this at the end of verse 2. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men have been foremost. So now we also have who? The political leaders. So both the spiritual leaders are doing this and the political leaders are doing this as well. Like the governors, children, that's what we mean when we say that. Like the people who are governing um, everything else that's not the God stuff. So here we have the spiritual leaders and the political leaders all doing this wickedness. And of course it's trickling down. You, as a leader, you need to understand that your, effect, your actions affect those under you. Dads, fathers, husbands, we're the leaders in our homes, are we not? We are the leaders in our homes. And we, we set the uh, temperature in the home. We really do. Mom does too, of course, but especially dads and husbands. We need to confess where we have been not as sharp as we need to be, not as focused as we need to be, not as intentional as we need to be. Because I'm telling you right now, if you're not intentional with the things of God, the devil will be sure it does not happen. Believe me. We are to be intentional. And those of you who have been dedicated in doing this, praise God. Praise God for that. But if you're like me, if you're like me, there are areas that I see I'm still lacking in. I still want to be better in. And those are the areas I'm talking about confessing. I'm not just assuming you're all losers. No, I'm just assuming you're like me. You've got some areas that still need some work. That's what I'm assuming. 
So confess those areas to God, and he will help you. These leaders were affecting the other people. How do we know that? Well, because in verse 1 it says, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites. So this was trickling down. We, we follow our leaders. That's what we do. When we get back into Mark soon, because we, we've taken a break on Mark for Christmas and now this prayer series. When we get back, remember when I titled that whole series? Follow the leader. Remember that? We follow our leaders. We follow their example. And you're either going to be a good leader or you're going to be a bad leader. And these men were being bad leaders. And that's just the truth of it. Ezra sees that, which is why we get his response in verse 3. Look at verse 3. His response is this. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak, which we know that's a very Jewish thing to do when you show great uh, trouble over something that tear the garment. Jesus is before the council at one point who are condemning him, and he essentially confesses equality with God, and the chief priest tears his garment and says, what further need have we have of any sort of talk? Listen to what he said. So this is a very Jewish way to show, oh gosh, I am just... What I'm doing to my garment is what's happening to me on the inside, essentially. I'm just torn. And then he goes further. He pulls hair from his head and his beard and sat appalled. Why? Why such extreme behavior here? Because he's very sensitive to what this means. He's very sensitive to not only his sin, but sin in general. And one of the worst things that happens to us as Christians is we, be, we become desensitized. Things that used to shock us, guess what? If we keep getting exposed to it, it's not so shocking anymore. Certain songs that we listen to the first time, we're like, oh gosh, oh, how filthy. You know, by the 10th time, you're like, eh, I mean, yeah, it's bad, but I mean, you know, whatever. I'm over it now. Used to work with a girl when I was working at uh, Lifeway Christian Bookstore, back when those were still around. And uh, we were talking about um, Game of Thrones, the series, the, the shows. I've never seen them. Uh, but I hear they have nudity in them. And she said, well, the nudity, does, the nudity doesn't bother me. And I thought, it's supposed to. <laughs> it's supposed to bother you. That shows that you've been desensitized to it. That's a shameful thing. And when shameful things don't make us blush, don't make us feel shame, something's wrong with us. Ezra's response was what the people should have been doing. It's an outward display of an inward reality. This is what was happening inside of him. And our sins should affect us, shouldn't they? I mean, have you ever been affected by your sin? Has your sin ever even physically affected you? If, it's, if, if the answer is no, it really hasn't, then I would say you've probably never experienced true godly confession then. If your sins have never made you weep, if your sins have never made you perhaps even miss a meal, if your sins have never made you just, I don't feel like doing life right now because of this thing that's either happening in my heart or someone's heart that I know and love, if that's never affected you, I would say, then pray for God to prick your conscience and save your soul because that's the first step. That's the first step. Repent which is a form of confession in itself, is it not? You're agreeing with God. God, I agree with you. What you say in your word about me is true. I agree. I've broken your laws. I'm a sinner. I agree with you. Please help me. That's what repentance is, is it not? This outward display of an inward reality within Ezra, why was it there? Well, these 
their newly given graces that they, the people of Israel just been given, they've got to come back to the land. They were in exile because of their sin, and they've now been allowed to go back to the land, rebuild the temple, start rebuilding the people as well as what Ezra was going to do. Their newly given graces should have resulted in them doubling down in their fight against sin, thinking, remembering, remember what our sin got us before? We, we don't want that again, people. Let's double down in our efforts against sin. And we don't see a, a doubling down because of these newly given graces. We, we just see them going right back into them, doubling down in their wickedness, as it were. Well, now let's see this, because verse 4 now gives us the faithful people's response. Verse 3 gives us Ezra's response, and verse 4 gives us the the faithful people's response. Then, it says in verse 4, all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithfulness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifices This phrase here, all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, you might say, that's an interesting way to say this. What, what does that mean, all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel? Well, he's actually, this is not the only time this phrase is used in the Bible. In Isaiah uh, 66.2, Isaiah 66.2 says, but on this one I will look, meaning God saying, on this man, this, this type of man, this is the one I'm going to put my attention on. But on this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble, contrite in spirit, and who trembles at my word. What does that mean? It means the word of God affects this person. It makes this person tremble, as it were, meaning he sees this as something to be revered, something to be in awe of, something special. He doesn't just see my word as all other words. He doesn't see this literature as all other literature. He trembles at my word. He understands the weight of it. That's, that's what it means. And so if we bring that phrase now from Isaiah back to our text and apply it, because we know it essentially means these are godly people who hold the word of God highly, highly in that it affects them. These people gathered around me, it says. Faithful people are attracted to faithful leaders. Faithful people will gather themselves to faithful leaders. Those of you who have truly been saved by the Lord, your God, you know that you want to be around others who also respect and love and fear and want to obey the the Lord as well, like you, right? Those are the people you want to be around. You don't want to be around the ones who profess it, but don't actually possess it, the fakes, the phonies. You don't want to be around them. You don't want to join yourself to people like that. Why? Because they're not real. They don't really love the Lord. Faithfulness attracts more faithfulness. And this is what we see here. This is what we see here. If you have found yourself attracted lately to unfaithfulness, Confess that to God. Because let me tell you, the spirit wars against the flesh. And your flesh really loves unfaithfulness, okay? Your flesh sees unfaithfulness as really fun and really enjoyable, okay? It really likes it. For those of you who truly know the Lord, you know that that fun is always followed by great guilt. Don't you feel dirty? Don't you feel dirty when you go back into old practices? I do. The Spirit says, this is not for you anymore, young man. That is not who you are anymore. Come back to me. And that's how we come back to God is through confession. I made this slide that I think will help you. This confession before connection. Confession before connection. You want to be reconnected to God, maybe feel distant from him? It's not, it's not God who turned away from you. 
It's your sin that caused you to turn away from God. Confession has to happen before that reconnection is going to happen. It's just like in any normal relationship. Let's say I sinned against you in some way. I was really rude to you. I was really mean to you. I was just nasty towards you in some way. Then I see you the next day. And I act like nothing happened. (laughs) Aren't you going to be like... I mean... Yeah, it's, it's good to see you, but I mean, don't you have something to say to me? <laughs> you might not say that with your mouth, but you're thinking, you know, everything's not just cool, right? I mean, it was really bad what you did yesterday. It was really mean what you said, really hurtful. And you know you shouldn't have said that. And here you are just acting like everything's hunky-dory. No, no, it's, there, there's got to be these words. I'm sorry about yesterday. That was wrong of me. Will you forgive me? Something like that, Right? It's like that in your relationships too, right? With your spouse. If you're the one who was mean and nasty, you know that there is ice in the air until there's a, I'm sorry, right? There's not that closeness that you love. You know that there's got to be a, hey, I was really, I was off in what I said. Please forgive me, I was hungry or I was grumpy or I had a bad day and I shouldn't have said that and I said it and I'm really sorry. I really am. Will you forgive me? And then guess what? There's a reconciliation after that. There's a, I forgive you, yes. That's how it's supposed to be, right? I mean, you don't want to hang it over the person's head like, oh, I'm going to store that away and use that later. No, we don't do that. You know why? 1 Corinthians 13, love keeps no record of wrongs, right? We don't, we don't use those things as ammunition. We don't do that. Not with people we love. So guys, there's got to be confession before the connection. It's that way with your spouse or others that you love, and it's that way with God. You don't just get to run into prayer again and be like, hey, everything's cool, right? Because I mean, we're just going to act like that didn't happen. So here's these things I want you to do for me. Now, that's often why I'll start prayer with confession. You've, you've seen the acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S, for prayer, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. It's just a helpful thing to kind of talk about four different ways of praying. I've never liked it. I rearrange it to cast. <laughs> it's the same letters. But you got to start with confession if there's been wrong done. You start with the confession, just like how I'm supposed to start with you. If I wronged you, you can't just act like everything's fine. I start with, hey, I'm really sorry about yesterday. I was a jerk. Please forgive me. Yeah, okay, cool. All right, now that that's out of the way, now let's act normal with each other, right? So I say cast instead. I, I have to start with the C, confession, when I know there's been wrong or else I feel like I'm not, I'm not connected with God. Here, I've separated myself from him because of my sin. These faithful people are attracted, however, to someone being righteous. And they, the, the righteous ones, are attracted to someone that they see. He's taking this seriously. Let's get around this guy. While he sits appalled until the evening sacrifice. And then look at this. Look at verse 5. At the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting. This affected him so much, he said No. I'm not worried about food right now. I'm worried about this problem. You know, when we get real about our sins, let me word it this way. We have to get real about our sins before we'll get serious about our sins. We have to get real about our sins before we'll get serious about our sins. He is choosing confession over food at this point even. And it's not even his sins. It's the sins of others. (laughs) So he, he gets up from his fasting with his garment, his cloak still torn. And then immediately it says, and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. He just got up and he falls down again. He's either weak from not having enough food or he's still just so emotionally torn. He's like, no, I have to keep praying about this. I have to keep confessing. Or maybe it's a combination of both. We don't know. But he gets up 
and immediately falls on his face again and prays and keeps confessing to the Lord. And then that's where we get this long prayer. And it starts out in verse 6. He says, I'm ashamed and blush to lift my face before you. If you've got your Bible with you, turn to Luke 18. Turn to Luke 18. We're going to look at verses 9 through 14. And I think I forgot to mention this to Wade, but Luke 18, 9 through 14. But, or if you have your Bible, just turn there. Luke 18, 9 through 14. This is familiar to you because this is the parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector. Jesus says this. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, for I, tw- I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat on his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, I tell you. This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This man in this parable says he wouldn't even look up to heaven, beat on his breast. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. What do we see here with Ezra? I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you. He did not even want to look up. Yes, God is omnipresent. He's present everywhere. So if you're looking down, you're looking at him. And if you're looking up, you're looking at him. I get that. But we all know, we speak about God being in the heavens, right? Up above us. The heavens sort of represent the presence of God to us. Like the psalmist says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims the work of his hands. I had a coworker once who told me, you know, I look up at the sky and I look at the clouds and the sun and I just, I think there must be a God. There has to be a God. We look at the heavens usually and think of God. And so this man, along with Ezra, knowing that the heavens represent God, as it were, he's saying, I didn't even want to look at him. I just, I was ashamed to even look up. Have your, have, have your sins ever affected you like that? Have you ever been that ashamed for the, your sins or even someone else's? Remember, this is all in response to other people's sins. Not even his own. Surely he acted this way about his own. Surely. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, our guilt has mounted up. And then in verse 7, he uses the same words again, but in opposite order. We've been in great guilt for our iniquities. He uses iniquities twice. He uses guilt twice. He knows the judgment is just. He knows the judgment is just. Iniquities, guilt, guilt, iniquities. He's saying, we're guilty. We have guilt. Your judgment is just. I'm agreeing with you on that, God. Let this vocabulary also be in your confessions. Don't sugarcoat it. Why? Why would you? He's the Lord of all the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. He knows all and he sees all. Even the innermost thoughts of a man's heart. Just be real with God. And he says... He knows this is what led to the captivity. Look at the, look at the middle and end of verse 7. He talks about um, how the kings and, and priests have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame. He's saying, God, I know it was you. I know it was you that brought all this upon us in the first place when we were invaded. Sword chopping through some of us, even captivity led some of us captive, plundered, even the old temple. We deserved it. This is what happened to them when they broke covenant before. This is what happened to them when they broke covenant before. And so he's extremely appalled that they would do it again. He can't believe it. 
And don't you feel that way about your own sin sometimes? Don't you? You say, I've prayed 999 times about this same sin, and I did it again. You just hate yourself. You just hate yourself for doing it. Have you felt that? I have. That hatred of sin needs to be there But guess where that hatred of sin comes from? I want to encourage you. If you have that hatred of sin, know this. That is the Holy Spirit within you. Because that is not from the flesh. So if you're saying, yeah, Cohen, I've done that too. Prayed 999 times about the same sin. And then did it again. And I hate it every time I do it. Okay, be encouraged. Be encouraged. That hatred of sin, that's good evidence. The Lord is at work within you. Be encouraged. He's keeping you confessing. That's good. That's good. Be encouraged, Christ Fellowship. Confession is good and healthy for the Christian because it shows you're sensitive to your sin. But now, he says, for a brief moment, in verse 8, but now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant, to give us a secure hold within this holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but he has extended to us steadfast love for the king of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up a house, to repair its ruins, to give us protection. Look at all these words. Favor, grant us, not forsaken us, extended steadfast love to us, grant us, give us. All these things are in there. He's saying, he's saying, God, you just keep giving and giving and giving. Despite what we did. And then look at verse 10. And now, and now, after all the goodness you've shown, after we have come back from exile. After all this giving and giving and giving and giving, and now, oh our God, what shall we say after all this? For we have forsaken your commandments. You just give and you give and you give and you're faithful and you're good and you keep your promises to bring us back to the land. And now we broke your commands. He's confessing. He's being real about this. And then he quotes what they were not supposed to do. Essentially, it's really a paraphrase. Verses 11 and 12, when you see um, which you commanded by your prophets saying, and then you see the little quote there, the land that you're entering. It's really a paraphrase of Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 through 5. When he tells the people, hey, don't go into the land and be like the people with their abominations. With they, just, they filled it from end to end with it. It's this picture of like this container just filled all the way up from end to end. And what's this container filled up with? This land, he's kind of like marking it off in borders. It's filled up. What's it filled with, he says at the end of verse 11? With uncleanness. It's filled with all this uncleanness. All that's unclean. Think of, you've seen those big containers that like cows drink out of. Big, right? Fill it up. Imagine that's filled with poisonous water. It's just poison. Straight poison. One drop, you're dead. God told them, you go into the land, essentially empty out the container empty it. Get all the poison out of the container. And the people go in and they start drinking from the container. They don't empty it out. They partake of it. And it's damning their souls and they don't see it. They think, no, this is good. This is, this is good. See? Someone wrote good on the outside over where it said poison. Somebody wrote good. And obviously what what they say, 
I mean, maybe what they say is right. Who's, who's to say? God's to say. What God says goes. If God says it's sin, then it's sin, and you need to confess it. I and God, we don't really even care what your fickle feelings are telling you that morning. I don't care, and God doesn't care. You know what he cares about? Truth. You don't get to create truth, nor do I. God's the creator of truth. He's the author of truth. He is the truth. He even calls himself that. And you and I don't get to create it or vote on it. We submit to it. You know why? Because that's good for us. And I know I'm using all kinds of language that is not PC. I get that. God is not concerned about winning a popularity contest among all your unsaved friends and celebrities. He doesn't care. He does care, however, about the salvation of their souls. He does care about what's best for them. And what's best for them is the truth. And what's best for you is the truth. That's why when you're not walking in the truth, you confess it to God. You agree with him. God, this was sin. Like your word says, it's sin. And I agree with you with that. And I'm sorry. I'm I'm agreeing with you here that your word is true. I tried to create my own truth. I tried to go against your truth. And I'm sorry about that. Please help me. I want to be better. Please help me be better. Change my wants. I pray that. Do you pray that? Because guess what? Every time I sinned, I wanted to. That's what I hate about myself. That's what you should hate about yourself. The want to within you. The want to sin. That's what scares me. That's what really scares me. Is there's that part of the flesh. And you know what I found? There's two appetites in me. The fleshly one and the spiritual one. There was only the fleshly one before. Now that I'm alive in Christ Jesus. Though the flesh is, as the Bible says, dead. Meaning... We have power over it. I choose to feed it sometimes. You know how you feed it? With the world. The more saturated your mind is with the things of the world, the more you feed the flesh. And the more you feed it, the bigger it grows. You know that, don't you? Any of you in here struggling with things of the flesh lately? You're probably feeding it. Any of you struggling with lust, you might be exposing yourself to some things that you shouldn't be exposing yourself to. Any of you struggling with a certain language coming out of your mouth, well, what's coming into your ears? What kind of stuff are you allowing to come into your ears? Struggling with gossip, you find yourself just gossiping, gossiping. Who are you hanging around then? Who are, are, are they gossipers? The things we feed grow. Which is encouraging, though, because guess what? You feed your spirit, it grows, too. It grows. That's encouraging, right? The more you're in the Word, the more you're in prayer, the more you're confessing, it's good for you. It's good for you. Look at this. He says in verse 13, you have punished us less than our iniquities deserved. He says... You know that punishment that you gave us that was really bad? I'm recognizing that it should have been more. He has a right view of his sin. He has a right view of his sin. And that's important. That's important. What makes us usually fall into sin or what makes us a little bit lighter on sin in the world or maybe sin in our home or sinful things we're listening to or watching or whatever, what makes the standard go down lower is we start getting a worldly view of what's right and wrong instead of God's view of what's right and wrong. He says, God, you'd have been right if you'd punished us more. And that's why he says, shall we break this commandment again in verse 14? He just can't get over what's going on here. 
And he ends by saying, behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. Now, once he's done praying that, something happens because the people, some people uh, gather around him. Look at Ezra 10 now. So we just finished chapter 9. Look at Ezra 10, and nope, don't worry. If you're thinking, what, is he going to go through all the way through chapter 10 now? Because it's already like almost 1140, and, you know, (laughs) it's pretty music. This is what happens in chapter 10. Look at this. Oops, I'm sorry, I was in Nehemiah 10. Let's get to Ezra 10. There we go. While Ezra prayed and, look, there's our word, made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him. Like I said, faithfulness attracts faithfulness out of Israel. For the people wept bitterly. And, um, let me get his name right, Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, the sons of the sons of Elam, answered Ezra, we have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now, there is hope for Israel in spite of this. And that's when they start to make a plan, what are we going to do about this? Why am I bringing that up? Bringing that up, like I said before, confession before connection. I've got something else for you now. Confession begets confession. Confession begets more confession. What's that word mean, beget? We don't use that very, very much. Basically, births more, like creates more, comes out of. True, real, godly confession begets more confession. What did the people do in response to Ezra's <laughs> extreme confession? They confessed. They said, you're right, Ezra. We... We were wrong in what we did. We, we should not have done this. Let's, let's, let's move forward now. Let's, let's change some things. And then the rest of the chapter is about how they started changing some things. So confession begets more confession. And that's true in your heart too. That's true in your heart too. If there's something in your life that the Lord's been pointing at. He's been pointing at it for a long time. And he's been saying, you know I'm not happy with this. You know this is not good for you. But you know, if I get serious with this, that means I'm going to have to tell somebody about this. Not only you, but other people too, perhaps. That's hard. It's really hard. <laughs> That's hard. But let me tell you this, when you make that step, it's so freeing, and it makes confession after that so much easier. Confession begets more confession, which means you're freer and freer and freer of that guilt. You want to be free of your guilt? Confess it to God, and then you might also have to confess it to someone else, because usually our sins are not only against God, usually our sins are against other people as well, aren't they? Confession begets more confession, which creates more freedom for you, okay? I'm trying to help you. This will help you. This is not an easy sermon to listen to. I get it, because it means basically, hey, we've got to get serious about our sin here. I understand that. But you know what happens when you get serious about fighting your sin? God gets serious about it too. God starts to give you more tools for what you need to do that fight and to win. Don't you want to win against sin? Confession is the first step. That's why I said I like the word cast better when it comes to how you pray. Confession, adoration, thanksgiving, supplication. That's where you have to start. Because until then, remember, confession before connection, right? I'm going to end with this. Because I've not even mentioned how and why God can even forgive you. Confession is all about God. I'm sorry which is followed by, I forgive you, usually, right? 
How can God even forgive you? Why would he even forgive you? Why is 1 John 1, 9 even true? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How can that even be? Only because the God-man, Jesus Christ, was punished in your place. He was punished for those sins already. Remember when Ezra was so vexed by his sin that he was ripping out his beard? Listen to this. This is a prophecy from Isaiah 50. Many prophecies about the Messiah in the book of Isaiah. Listen to this one. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. That's a prophecy about the Lord Jesus, I believe. He gave his back to the strike. He gave his cheek to those who rip out the beard. Ezra was ripping out his own beard because of his distress over the sin of the people. Jesus had his back whipped and his beard ripped out And his face was spat upon because he was taking the punishment for those sins. The wrath of the Father fell upon him, and it doesn't have to fall on you. Isn't that good news? You can be forgiven of that guilt that you've got. It can be forgiven. Why? Because Jesus was already punished for it. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And that's why confession can be effective. That's why confession can be effective. That's why your confession of your sins can be forgiven because of the God-man. Let's pray in his name right now. Father, we thank you for this truth. I pray, Father, that you would apply these eternal truths to our hearts Father, I pray that you would please give us a sensitivity to sin like Ezra had. So very sensitive to sin. So very serious about sin. And we have to get real about our sins before we'll get serious about our sins. So Father, I pray that you would please help us all to be ready and willing to confess to you quickly when we sin, to keep short accounts with you we thank you that Jesus has already taken the punishment for those sins. We repent, believe these things, we can be saved. It's in his name we thank you. Amen.